Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $147 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues Scott Glasser and Chuck Harris for our second annual Outlook podcast. Scott is ClearBridge's co-chief investment officer and a portfolio manager for the appreciation and dividend strategies. And Chuck is our director of research as well as a portfolio manager for our U.S. policy theme equity strategy. And the topic of today's podcast is the ClearBridge market and political outlook for 2019. Now, it's hard to believe that this is our 23rd podcast how quickly time flies. But uh, for you listeners out there, we'd love to get your feedback about the topics that we cover and how we can make our podcast better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So Chuck Scott, thanks again for joining me in the booth here today. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. So uh, again, this is the second annual outlook, hopefully the second of many annual outlooks that we're going to have here. And to get the ball moving, I want to review how we did as prognosticators in predicting the market and economic action last year. So maybe I'll start off with highlighting a couple of the correct calls that each of us made one year ago. Um, I had mentioned that uh, we're going to make it past the average economic expansion that we've seen here in the U.S. of 33 quarters. Um, I think we're going to make it well past that average, especially with what the ClearBridge dashboard is flashing right now. Scott, there's a reason why you're our co-investment officer. You uh, had predicted that uh, you had worried that the market had pulled forward some of the returns from 2017 uh, and that 2018 would be a mid-single-digit return year. And we're very close to that at this point. If you include the dividend, we're very close. We also have two more weeks of trading ahead of us. And you felt like it was going to be more of the same with acceleration in earnings and a manageable uptick in rates. And then, Chuck, you had talked about the tax bill that it would pass before Christmas, which it did, and that larger companies will keep the tax benefits and margins will ultimately rise, while some of the smaller companies and the with, with fragmented, more competitive areas of the marketplace would compete it away. So now that we've talked about some of the positives from last year, I, I think maybe we want to have a little bit more accountability for our predictions here in 2019. So I've come up with six questions um, that I want to pose to each of you. Um, You can say true or false or whether that will happen or not. And the first one's in regards to market action. So will the market be up 10% or greater um, over the next year? By the time we have the podcast this time next year, and and just for some perspective, we're talking about the S&P 500. Today, it's at 2592, and a 10% return from here would be 2851. So true or false, will the market be up 10% or more? Yes, this is Scott. Yes, I think the market will be up uh, greater than 10%. Okay. Uh, this is Chuck. No, I think it's going to be up less than 10%. Oh, I'm the tiebreaker here. I'm going to say yes. I think the market will be up 10% or greater uh, after a relatively flat year. Okay, that's question number one. Question number two, which is something that investors have fretted on all year long, is the dollar. Uh, will the dollar be higher and lower? And the benchmark that we're going to use is the trade-weighted major index that the Fed uses. And uh, as of December 7th, which is the latest reading, it was at 92. So, Chuck, will the dollar be higher or lower by the time we have this podcast next year? The dollar will be stronger a year from today. Stronger. I agree. The dollar will be stronger. 
Ooh, I'm going to take the opposite here. I think the dollar will be weaker. I, I do believe that the Fed <clears throat> will have a dovish surprise and uh, rate hikes will be less than what's expected. All right, number three, the 10-year Treasury. Will it be over 3.25%? Um, and today, just for some perspective, is at 2.86%. So a rise of roughly 40 basis points. Scott? So my expectation is that it will be right around 3.25%. So it will be over. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of taking the neutral position, saying it's going to be right around plus or minus 10 basis points, right around uh, 325. Okay, we'll say higher, uh, lower, or equal. To the degree it's 40 basis point move, I still think that the Fed's going to do probably two moves next year. Okay. Or between now and the end of, over the next 12 months. And so exactly where that ends out, but I, I'm, I'm going with 225 basis point moves. For the Fed, so if that's reflected in the uh, in the ten year, it's going to be close to that number, plus or minus. So you're going to say equal as well. All right, I'm I'm going to have to break the tie here. I got to go over. I think the ten year Treasury will be higher than three and a quarter, and outside of that ten basis point realm. And and Chuck, you had mentioned uh, the Fed. Um, we are on the eve of the Fed meetings here of Tuesday and Wednesday here in December. Um, will the Fed have two or more than two rate hikes? Um, by the time we meet this time next year. So three Consider, or more. Considering I just said, I think that they'll do two. So I'm sticking with that yeah. from the last five minutes. You'll say false. Okay. Not going to hit two over two high rate hikes. Scott? So I think the Fed does one in December, as we're anticipating, and then does two more over the course of 2019. So you're going to take the over? I'm going to take the – well, it's – they won't have more than two Fed hikes in 2019. They will have exactly two Fed hikes in 2019. Okay. Um, I'm going to say a total of two rate hikes between now and the next time that we meet. So I'm going to take the under on that one. So you're taking two. I'm you're taking, taking two. I'm taking three. Yeah. Yep. Okay. There we go. Um, U.S. markets have outperformed the international space. Um, you know, international obviously led in 16 and 17. Will the U.S. continue to outperform the international space? And we're going to look at the S&P 500 versus the ACWI. Chuck? U.S. is going to continue to outperform. Okay. I agree the U.S. is going to continue to outperform. I'm going to take the international. The contrarian in me just can't help it. And maybe the last one that we'll, we'll share with the, view, uh, the listeners here. Um, oil has derated substantially over the course of the last three months. Brent crude is trading at $60 a barrel today. Will it be above $75 a barrel? No. No. I'm going to go with no. All right. We have agreement right there. I don't know if we're going to have to come up with some sort of trophy, depending on how these <laughs> these uh, predictions come out. I'm hoping one of us will be six for six, but we'll see. We'll have to wait 12 months to find that out. But um, Scott, me and you uh, were at Asset TV here recently uh, discussing the outlook for 2019. I'm just going to do a shameless plug. It's a great video. You should check it out. Scott, Margaret Vetrano, and also Michael Testor were on there with myself. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was equity volatility, right? It's come back in spades versus 2017. So are we going towards a more normalized volatility environment? And is this what we should expect going forward in 19? So I think that you are going towards a more normalized equity vol uh, volatility market. However, I would not characterize September through December, in other words, the last couple of months that we've had as normal. I think that's been at an elevated rate because of a whole bunch of issues, which we'll discuss later in, in the podcast. Um, so I would say that we are going from a extremely low volatility 
uh, scenario over multiple years, eight, nine years, um, which was a function of extremely low, basically zero interest rates. And as interest rates normalize, as the term premium on bonds starts to pick up a little, you will have a return to a normal volatility year. It will feel worse than it has. Um, Normalcy bias. Exactly. Uh, Recency bias. bias, Benchmark to the last uh, data point. It will feel worse than it has the last several years, um, but it will be normal in the context, uh, the historical context of markets. There's no doubt about it. Now, now, obviously, that's a function of central bank tightening, right? As the banks tighten, um, that takes liquidity out of the system and volatility usually rises as you get later and later in an economic cycle. That's correct. That's correct. And I think that the fact that that credit has been so available and money has been so easy um, that you could basically fund anything. And as you take away that fund or as you make that funding mechanism a little harder, um, I think that asset levels uh, react or become more sensitive to the discount rate. So as as rates rise, then yes, you get a return towards more normal volatility. Well, I'm not going to lie. I'm happy that credit is a little bit more available. I just got a mortgage on uh, on Wednesday, on Thursday of last week, so I'm I'm hoping I'm happy that at least the spigots have been open at least this long. But if we are going back to a more normal volatility regime, what does that do for your outlook? Do you think returns will remain constrained? I know you had talked about before that you think we're going to get above 10% return in the markets. Um, will you see a re-rating this year? I think you've already seen a re-rating over the last several months. Uh, you look at multiples on the market, and there's different ways to obviously put valuation metrics on the market. But using PEs as an easy way to think about it, I mean, you're you're already down one and a half to two multiple points uh, because the market itself is is down 11 percent. You know, as of this taping, assuming that we end the year kind of roughly where we are, I think actually that that number or that 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 multiple. Um, should with the with the potential to wrap up a couple of open issues as we go into the new year, that actually I think of that more as kind of a you know more or less a a um, the bottom of the range for potential multiples as we go forward. Um, now, if we get modest increases in interest rates, um, then I think the multiple holds. If if for some reason you got to pick up inflation, particularly on the wage side, and and we were all wrong and interest rates were uh, to continue higher than we all expect, then you're going to get more multiple pressure. So I think the multiple has already corrected. Um, it, it, you know, um, I think it's hard to make a significant case for multiple uh, expansion, um, but I don't think you have to. If you look at what earnings are expected to do, and we'll come back and we'll talk more about this, you're probably looking at about 8% earnings growth next year, coming off of a huge year last year, which is why, again, it feels uh, probably slower and tougher, but you know you don't need a lot of multiple with an eight percent year, and then throwing in a dividend to get a double digit return year. Yeah, eight percent earnings growth, two point two five percent dividend. You're already over that ten percent threshold. I'll give you one multiple point, and that's another. You know, what, whatever that you know mathematically equates to, and you you've got then mid double digit returns actually. So it doesn't take that much. Well, in fact, this if you look over the past forty years, um, if again the market ended today. This would be the third biggest contraction of multiples over the course of the last 40 years. And, you know, this is coming off uh, the best earnings and revenue growth that we've seen since 2011. But with this derating, it's obviously presented some opportunities in the marketplace. Um, Chuck, any sectors, industries right now that you think are a lot more attractive today than they were six months ago? The two that really draw my attention are defense and, uh, and home builders. Uh, I like the defense names. They re-rated down fairly significantly. 
Yet on the other hand, the bias for defense spending in the United States and largely globally is really going to be up and to the right for the foreseeable future. So, With, with this geopolitical situation? Geo, you have significant changes in overall geopolitical risk. That money is going to get spent whether the economy is really good or mediocre or poor because it's a natural a national defense issue. And so you get anywhere between 4 and 8% top-line growth. You get a little bit of margin. You know, that'll get translated all the way down to 5 to 10% earnings growth plus a bit of a dividend, a lot of safety there. Uh, it feels like the right. It feels like a good place to be in everything other than a really aggressive momentum market. Well, and, and if the markets continue to be choppy, which is what we we expect, a little bit more higher volatility, uh, people would seek out the relative safety of those defense companies. Exactly, and then you know, secondly, it just impresses me that the home builders are have been an absolutely horrific set of performers this year. I mean, I think they're down 40 percent, and from from the way that I think about it, and, and market's not that bad. The market really isn't that bad. The demographics are good. Underlying unemployment is 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 very favorable. Demographics are favorable. Everything's favorable there, but for the fact that buyers are not buying it to the degree and the rate that people expect them to be, and you're still below some normalized level of demand as we've been now for a decade. Well, uh, I think just to keep up with population growth and uh, and demolitions, you need 1.5 million units, and we're nowhere close to that level right now. Precisely, and so consequently, a lot of these home builders are, are trading at book value uh, or less, and that presumes all sorts of impairments and bad things happening to them. I don't see it happening, and so I, I would expect that the home builders are, are going to have a nice uh, rally at some point in, in 2019. And maybe they're being unfairly punished, right? Obviously, the last recession was caused by overbuilding. Um, you've seen a slowdown of uh, demand here, at least from higher interest rates and the SALT deductions, um, down 30 40%. That sounds like a level that I'd be interested in personally. And if you, you look at some of the economic data, one thing that I think is important is when you think about housing is you look at starts and permits, but they're notoriously volatile data sets, right? You had hurricanes and a number of different locations here in the U.S. It's really distorted the data. And even though you had some weak prints here recently, if you look at the first 10 months of 2017 versus the first 10 months of 2018, so you, you kind of normalize that, starts are up 5.4% and permits are up 2.5%. So it's not like the housing market has rolled over per se. It's just gotten a little bit weaker. Scott, any thoughts? No, you, you hit on a key uh, observation, which is there are a number of sectors in this market that are selling as if we're going into recession. Uh, the valuations have compressed significantly. The numbers may have tightened a little, I mean, come down a little, but the valuations themselves have come down a lot more, and they're selling as if we're going into a recession. I think it's important to point out that what's happened in the economy over the course of the last quarter um, with the slowdown is very similar to what happened uh, during after the last tax cut. So we had an enormous tax cut that was front-end loaded, uh, put money in people's— And this was 03, 04? Well, if, exactly. If you look at the 03 tax cuts and then the 05 repatriation and you compare that to now, both of those are very similar in the fact that they were front-loaded front in their benefits. So consumers saw the benefit pretty quickly. Um, they both had a component that basically lowered the cost of equity for corporations. And, both of, and in the case of 2003 and then 2005, what you saw was an immediate effect on the economy where it jumped up. And um, and then after a period of four to six quarters, then came back to whatever that baseline number was before we had the tax cut. And what you're seeing in the economy right now is a replay 
of exactly what happened during those periods. You got the boost. We went up to over 4% GDP, the best number in probably 10 years or so. And now we're coming back to something that was the trend line before we got these tax cuts, which is somewhat in the 2 to 3% range. First quarter may be a little tougher. It's been that situation, I would argue, has been made worse by the trade battle that we're in. There's a trade battle going on right now. (laughs) You heard about it? (laughs) That's added to the volatility of stocks as well. So I think it is, I mean, there's a number of things that need to kind of be resolved in a positive or at least a moderate way for us to get where we think we're going in 2009. I think there will be a um, more rational um, resolution of the trade policy and the the trade battles um, that we're seeing right now. I think that is important. But, But assuming that happens, um, in some, again, rational manner. Um, all of this assumes kind of a rational government, a rational uh, decision-making process. I, I maybe the big key, assumptions. <laughs> yes, I know. Maybe the big, the big caveat here is, is, is that, exactly. But assuming that happens, I think you will see uh, the economy you know, stabilize in this 2 to 3% range over the course of the rest of the year. And a lot of the sectors that we're talking about that have sold off as if we're going into recession, um, we'll see a, a, a good jump back. Now, you mentioned fiscal stimulus. Um, you know, if you look back at uh, the, the market from uh, going all the way back to 1950, traditionally right now is where we're the, one of the best times to invest in the markets, right after you get through the midterm elections. And since 1950, you've had 17 periods where we've had a year following that midterm election, and you've had 17 positive years of market returns. So your hit rate was 100% accurate. And uh, your average return during that year was 15.3%, which is almost double the long-term average. And uh, you you mentioned fiscal stimulus. One of the biggest reasons why you've seen this performance cycle is the presidential cycle very closely mirrors the economic cycle. So most recessions either start in year one or year four of a presidential cycle. And the key reason is because when you have a new president come into the Oval Office, it takes time for them to assemble their cabinet, put together a comprehensive tax plan, and get that passed through Congress. And all the while, you have a recession because the fiscal stimulus from the previous administration ran up. So we've had some fiscal stimulus enter into the economy in December of last year. I think that make it uh, this year and then next year, you're still going to see that boost, which should help economic growth, as you mentioned, um, but also it should help markets move higher. Um, now, now, Chuck, we, we're, we're talking a little bit about midterm elections and the, the political landscape. Uh, I know, obviously, with the U.S. policy uh, portfolio that you manage, um, that's something that uh, is, is very you have your ear very close to the ground on. So talk to me a little bit about the political landscape. You know, h- how do you think it's going to impact markets and the economy here in 2019? I would love to see the data of how markets performed in the year of a midterm election. Because to the degree, my understanding has always been that that year is never particularly great. So then you get a, a nice rebound and recovery year in the following year. A lot of you volatility do, that in the you, second year. Yep. Yeah, so you kind of end up doing a two-year stack. You end up sort of if you were normalized it out. I just wonder about that. But look, I think that there are a couple of, of real variables out there. Uh, for better or worse, virtually everything circles around the president of the United States, whereas in previous administrations – that wasn't always completely true. Um, focus on trade, how China reacts is going to be a very big deal in terms of global growth. I mean, we can't discount the fact that China is a $12 trillion economy that grows at 6% a year, has a disproportionate impact on what global growth looks like. I would argue they've been the, the world's engine of, uh, of growth over the past 25 years. And to the degree that you've seen Chinese 
economic activity slowing and just recently really slowing relative to expectations. Um, they have to figure out how to manage both their, their trade issues as well as internal growth rates. They're behind the curve clearly in trying to stimulate the economy. They've done a little bit, but they're probably going to have to do more. And I don't think you're going to see Chinese global growth really start to accelerate till the second half of next year. So that's, that's part one. This all fits together with how they're going to address trade. When it comes to trade, there are two questions. The Really, the issue is, is, is the president of the United States going to look to run for a second term? There are people out there, increasingly so, that really believe at their core that Donald Trump is not going to run for a second term. Interesting. If he chooses not to run— Would that be the first time in history? That that's the case? Do we get to do a true false on that also? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not, I'm not taking the over under on <laughs> <Okay>. this. <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying this is what happened. But to the degree that he chooses not to, then it's much easier for him to sign a trade pact with China, drop the mic. I've now accelerated the economy. Mm-hmm. Unemployment is incredibly low. China, I'm taking care of. Mexico and Canada, I've taken care of. I, you know, the immigration thing is still a bit of an issue, but we're keeping these, this at bay. I went everywhere. I walk off the stage as a hero. And because markets would rally immediately on that news. Uh, it, because it was, it, he wins on all scores. He gets to walk off. I win. Thank you very much. And he's out of there. To the degree that he chooses that he really wants to run for re-election, the likelihood is, is he needs to keep China around as a bit of a pinata mm-hmm. for the next 18 months. And so you don't get any resolution until closer to election time. And then he can call himself a hero, win, or he may even need to keep it for... You know, and this is a very this is a very cynical view, and I admit that. But this is the other part of it is is it is a political game that he's playing there. So he has to figure that out. That's one part of the political arena that we need that is not so obvious. And, the, and it is politically popular on both sides of the aisle. Oh, nobody likes China anymore. Right. China is everyone's fuck. Yeah, but 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 let me push back a second because it's a really, really kind of difficult balancing act because if he pushes too much, look, the first the first quarter and second quarter are going to be tough for the U.S. Uh, for a lot of U.S. companies in the stock market. Results yeah. will not be great. A lot of the, the the returns that we're talking about probably are more back end loaded, and I hate that I hate that phrase, but probably more back end loaded um, than than we would like. Um, and so it's a very delicate balancing act between, again, using them as a pinata or having a foil for which you can then blame someone and doing it too much to the point in which it, it, the economy slows. And then that becomes not – it was never a positive. It was never, at least in the, the, the midterms, was never a positive for him or for the party. But it certainly become could become a negative if it's too weak. Well, it can impact confidence, right? If inflation is going higher on goods, right. the consumer so, gets less confident. So it's a delicate balancing act. But what you have – and the retort to that would be the U.S. Trade Representative has spent literally his entire adult career uh, attempting to push back on, on, on China trade. Robert Lighthizer. And he is the point person on this. Uh, and what's really interesting when you look at the – negotiating postures, the United States has asked for and requested, quote-unquote, structural reforms within China. However, they have thus far chosen not to define what structural reforms look like. And so every time the Chinese come back with something, they simply respond with structural reforms. And so to the degree that the Chinese thus far have been negotiating against themselves for the past 18 months, it has become very frustrating how this all plays out. I don't really know the answer, Scott. 
Um, Look, I, I just again to to go back to some of the earlier comments. I think there is the argument to be made that there will be a rational um, compromise on certain issues, um, and then there'll be other issues getting into intellectual capital and others that will take literally mm-hmm. years to figure out. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of different ways this is going to play out. You know, we one would we hope that it's going to be rational. Now on the on the on the political side, also the only thing that I see happening where you may actually get something truly positive economically coming out of the uh, uh, political landscape is everyone also seems to agree on a uh, an infrastructure bill and and it's something that the Democrats want. Uh, it's something that I think the Republicans would be willing to sign up for, and so to agree that they can find a way to fund it, that would not be a big surprise to me. I think that you could possibly see that. Uh, end of next by the end of next year or you know, early in 2020, but it's going to get some momentum going on next year. But I would imagine the scope would be much less than the trillion dollars that was initially campaigned the tw- on. The trillion dollars was never a reasonable number. All right, so let's let's keep moving forward. Let's talk about the growth value debate. I, I would say that a lot of my conversations end up here. Um, 2017 was clearly a dominant year for uh, for growth, um, and for the first two thirds of this year as well. But you've seen a return to value here recently. Um, what's your expectations for for next year, Scott? Do you you think it'll be one leading the other, or more of a neutral market? Well, in line with my comments earlier, I think you get a rebound in a lot of the value oriented sectors. Maybe. You know, maybe in the first part of the year, but there, there will be a rebound in some of them as I think the market comes to grips or, or accepts the fact that, that you know, perhaps we're not going into a recession. Um, I think ultimately, you know, it's a long year. Ultimately, I, I think you, you still get growth. I think that growth will continue to dominate. And so I think what happened to a certain extent is we got too extended. Value got too cheap and growth got too expend, uh, extended. And so you've corrected those excesses towards a more normal place. I still think it's a growth market over a value market. As growth, um, you know, um, decelerates over the first half of the year and then, you know, people get concerned about that um, going forward into 2020. So I still think it's a growth um, company, What uh, a growth market. What What's interesting to me, though, is it's not – all growth companies. There's a using tech as an example, and tech was or had been. Now it's, I believe, healthcare, but that may have changed in the last day or two as well. Um, you know, tech was the best performing sector again, then then became health healthcare. Um, you've seen more recently a bifurcation in the technology market, where it's not all technology or it's not all growth going up. And I think that as you continue to go through this next year. It will be growth, but you it won't be everything. You will continue to have this bifurcation that is dependent on maybe certain end, end markets, maybe it's cloud, maybe it's others, um, that keeps certain growth companies going, but will not be dragging al- along some of the smaller and, and second-tier companies as well. Hey, hey Scott, isn't, isn't this type of the market typically where you end up with more idiosyncratic stock-specific names rather than broader you know, broader themes uh, where you sit there and say growth versus value. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it becomes a better environment. And it goes back to the volatility question. It becomes a better environment for active managers um, because you can then make certain bets on certain value. You can combine. Again, it depends what part of the market you kind of specialize in as a portfolio manager. But even within then, you within that uh, sub part of the market, you can um, – it's not everything. It's more stock picking, and and you get to play both the better companies and the better the better trends out there. Um, and I think you'll you'll continue to see that. 
And I, and I think it all relates to the cost of capital, right? With zero interest rates for 10 years or nine years, I should say, QE, everybody kind of got a participation medal, if you will. Um, and that's really allowed some of the weaker companies to come to the forefront. But as the Fed continues to do double tightening, normalizing policy, liquidity starting to come back a little bit. I, I think that's one of the key drivers why you start to see a return back to active. Let's talk a little bit about the economic cycle. And that's uh, obviously something that my team has done quite a bit of work on with our ClearBridge Recession Risk Dashboard. Um, You know, even with the slowdown that we've seen here with the market volatility, um, it still has 11 green, one yellow, zero red, stoplight analogy. Um, And that means that we still have a lot of time left in this economic cycle. And and same comments that uh, both you, Scott, and and Chuck had mentioned, uh, I don't think we're close to the end yet. Um, in fact, if we actually make it to July of 2019, this will be the longest economic cycle in the post-World War II era here for the U.S. Um, and I think it's going to last a lot longer than that. And, and one of the key reasons for that's the case is the, a flatter Phillips curve. Usually, uh, the Fed is, looks at the Phillips curve, which really means that when the unemployment rate goes down, wage growth tends to spike up. And wage growth is the biggest determinant of inflation over longer periods of time. So if you don't have that same relationship, that means the Fed doesn't necessarily have to over-tighten the economy uh, and end up prematurely causing a recession here. Um, But we've put out a really good piece here recently that looked at the 2006 through 2009 period in this dashboard, and it was more of an evolution over the course of one to two years. Um, And with 11 green and one yellow, that means that we still have uh, maybe the next recession in earliest 2020, maybe 2021. any thoughts on the you know the the, the near term likelihood of a recession? Do you, do you see two thousand twenty really being the, the the earliest that we'll we'll likely have something like that? I think it's too early to to quite honestly, I think it's too early to know. Um, you've heard me talk about maybe I was going to say endlessly, maybe too much. My belief that at the end of the day, it's all about liquidity, and liquidity is the primary determinant of both bear and bull markets. Um, liquidity is defined as an incre- in, increase in in uh, interest rates, but it all is also a lot of other things. It's the Fed balance sheet, which we know has been contracting. Um, it's money supply, it's interest rates, it's the dollar, it's it's commodities, it's a lot of other things. Um, and if there's one thing that I'm watching as we go through the course is the kind of how restrictive does liquidity get? You've had a little bit of a backup in spreads, as an example. Another prime indicator of liquidity. Bond markets have always been excellent indicators of of or using bond metrics have been helpful for stock markets and indicators of liquidity. So spreads as an example. Some backup, but from ultra tights. So having a little bit of a backup or widening of spreads doesn't really make me that nervous. Obviously, some um, increase in, in rates, but not a lot. The thing that does bother me a little is the, 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 the um, slowdown in money growth and the curtailment of the, the Fed's balance sheet. That's kind of in the back of my mind, and I think, and I worry about that. Could, could but, be the black swan? Well. We're kind of an uncharted territory. Yeah, we're, that, more, like, more like you gray. Don't <laughs> gray swan. You don't know. You don't know. Um, but but as a as a adding all these things together, it's the one thing that, that I will be spending most of my time looking at. I know on your dashboard, it's certainly one of the central indicators. And so as that happens, you'll have a better idea. Um, and so um, – that will, to me, interest rates, liquidity, let's not say interest rates, liquidity will be kind of the prime determinant of whether, in fact, we get double-digit returns in 2019 and when the recession comes versus kind of any other metric. And I mean, the only thing I'll throw in there is most 
recessions that I can that I can remember going back to the early '80s. There was clearly an imbalance that you saw somewhere that was fairly material that was going to have an impact. Whether it was inflation rates in the late '70s and into early '80s, whether it was um, you know the the financial crisis, whether it was real estate problems or or junk bonds or things like that, where you you didn't know when it was going to end, but you knew that it wasn't right. And these are things that you can't necessarily quantify specifically, but you know if you spend time in the markets that there's something just egregiously wrong here, it will happen. You just don't know how it ends. You, you know it ends badly, but you don't know when it ends. It always will end badly, right? Um, timing, of course, is the, the hard part to be able Correct. to understand. But you don't have anything like that that is obvious and evident at this point, whether there's stuff hidden out there, whether it's you know student loans or whether it's you know some country failing. Uh, or anything like that. There's no obvious trigger sitting out there just waiting to be pulled. Now, maybe the last question that uh, I'll end on here really quickly is the Fed. We obviously had one of the questions, how many rate hikes do we see next year? Uh, Me and Chuck have two. Uh, Scott, you had said three. You talked a little bit about uh, quantitative tightening or selling some bonds and and MBS off the balance sheet. Is there anything that, uh, from a Fed perspective, that you you expect over the course of the next twelve market twelve months that may take the market by surprise? I.e., maybe they stop quantitative tightening a little bit uh, earlier than what's currently anticipated. Like, uh, do you think that they recognize what the market's telling them at this point that maybe policy is a little bit too tight? I'll I'll start with this one. I think the reason I did two is because I think just growth is going to start to decelerate, and you know, for those of us that have been doing this for a long time. We have a view of neutral, a view of neutral, maybe four or five. I mean, conceptually in the back of our heads, but to the degree that there is consistently an absence of inflation, you could have neutral being three or three and a quarter would not be, you know, mathematically incorrect. And I think that to the degree that you do get some economic deceleration, it doesn't accelerate to the degree we would hope it to be in the second half of next year. That that could really be sort of we discover where a new neutral is. I mean, we took inflation's best shot when GP, GDP growth was at 4% in the second quarter. You're seeing all the numbers go down, and oil's down 40% from the highs. So I'm amazed. I'm <coughs> amazed that, that we're not seeing the pull-through, uh, uh, particularly on the wage front. You're seeing a little, but you're not seeing a lot. Um, I'm amazed that you're not seeing a greater pull-through excuse me, of inflation on, on, you know, in, on the economic numbers. It's great. It's, it's, it's very positive. It gives them the opportunity to, to really be, uh, as they say, data dependent is the, the language that they're using now. Well, that's all the time that we have here today. But as we wrap up, I just want to throw it out to both of you. Are there any key takeaways or closing thoughts that you want to leave with our listeners here uh, about the 2019 outlook? Um, Chuck, I'll start with you. As we end 2018 going into 2019, uh, I think that we should understand and, and sort of embrace our inner volatility a little bit. I think that it's going to give people opportunities to buy high-quality names at discount prices and not to be afraid of that. Um, you know, we, we, this happens. This is why there is such a thing as an active management group is we get, get that, that opportunity to go do that. And I think that uh, as correlations in, in, break down and, you know, opportunities emerge, I mean, I think that that's where you want to be really opportunistic and active. Scott? I'll just conclude by saying that, that in my view, markets sell on interest rates, profits, uh, or earnings, and sentiment. And we've talked about interest rates and we've talked about uh, profits and earnings. Uh, what we haven't talked about is sentiment. And, and the sentiment is really only a helpful indicator at, at extremes. And it feels like uh, you are finally getting close 
being where we are now to kind of a negative extreme. Uh, maybe we're not there. Near, excuse me. Maybe we're not there yet, uh, but we're getting awfully close, and it's as extreme as I've seen it over the last, you know, half a dozen years, quite honestly. And if that's the case, then that gives me more confidence that, in fact, next year can be a good year. In other words, a contrarian indicator. The more extreme or more negative the sentiment gets, the more likely that we'll be surprised on the upside. I do agree. Um, not everything goes up. It will be a better year for active stock pickers, and I, and I do have a bias towards quality. And one closing thought that I'll mention is that I, I see a lot of parallels today with what was happening in the markets in 2015 and 16. You know, oil went through the floor. The dollar was strengthening. Uh, the Fed was expected to be very tight. I mean, coming into 2016, they had just entered their taper and they were going to do four rate hikes. And the Chinese were stimulating their markets all throughout 2015. Of course, once we got to the early part of 2016, the Fed walked back a lot of that hawkish narrative. They only did one rate hike in 16. And then all that stimulus that the Chinese had put into their markets finally started to see through to higher economic growth. And the markets had a phenomenal run in 16 and 17. And I, I see a similar dynamic playing out here today. Uh, in fact, the Chinese have done 47, 47 easing moves over the last six months. And I would imagine that they're going to be doing a couple more as we go through and in, enter in, into 2019. So I think that's going to be one of the biggest catalysts that we see with why equity markets, not only here in the U.S., but for the international space, will rise next year. Uh, but Scott, Chuck, thank you so much for uh, joining me here in the booth. Uh, we're going to have to come up with a medal again or a trophy, depending on how these answers play out. Um, but thanks again for being in here. And everybody, thanks for uh, listening in to the 2019 Outlook here for ClearBridge. Uh, we wish you a happy and safe holiday season and a great new year. And we look forward to having you back here in January uh, for the next podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of December 17th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.